Where can we find God? In the second chapter of Luke, the familiar story, beginning at verse 22, a part of the story maybe that is not as often read at Christmas. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bond servant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. A number of years ago, a woman died in the city of New York and left a will she also left in this will a huge estate worth millions of dollars. The problem was that the will bequeathed everything to God. And so the attorneys set out to settle the estate, to carry out all of the legal matters to the letter. The first thing they did was file a case in court listing God as the party thereto. And the court duly drew up a legal summons issued to God and played like they thought it could be carried out and served, which of course brought chuckles to many people as the farce was carried out. And after all the legal matters were cared for, a final report was issued which read in part, After due and diligent search, God cannot be found in New York City. 
I suppose it would take some doings to find God in any city with all of its squalor and its poverty and its despair. It was true in Jerusalem, a city of bustling commerce and trade, a city where many religions of the world gathered together to talk to one another, a city that was under the rule of a Roman army and a Roman government which brought all kinds of problems in itself. But there was a man there looking for God. He'd been looking for Him all of his life. And time was getting short because now he was old with years. Imagine the excitement when his eyes first beheld the Lord. And he rushed up to the child's father and mother who had brought him there for dedication and asked permission to hold him. And in his arms he held God himself and prayed this strange prayer. Now let your servant die, for mine eyes have seen the salvation prepared for all your people. Against the backdrop this morning of all the sights and sounds of Christmas and against the background of this question, where do we find God? I submit free incontrovertible truths. Proposition one, you can find God anywhere you want to find Him. Imagine that scene, the stir it caused, when for the first time, when these magi, we assumed there were three because there were gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, when these astrologers, these stargazers, appeared at Caesar's palace, Caesar's palace and knocked on his gate, I imagine a scene something like this. A servant comes down and they say, we've traveled for months in search of God. Following his star, we have come to see the king. And the servant goes in to the inner chamber and knocks on Herod's door and says something like this, oh, pardon me, sir, I hate to interrupt you, but there's some men downstairs having gifts for the king. And when he said gifts, Caesar kind of perked up and he, he said, well, send them in. I'll give them a few minutes. No, sir, I'm, I'm afraid you don't understand. They want to see the real one. They want to see the kurios, the Messiah, the kurios. Well, fool, don't you know my name is Kaiser Hekurios, Caesar of the Lord? Oh, no, sir, I beg your pardon. I, I'm sorry, but I think they want to see the Lord of Lords. And they've said they want nothing more, and they'll settle for nothing less. I tell you, you can find Him anywhere you want to find Him. And how badly you want to find Him is usually determined by how deep your sense of need for Him is. A little girl was asked, How do you like your new baby brother? She said, well, I like him fine, but there are a lot of things we needed a lot worse. <laughs> Whether you know it or not, there is nothing you need worse than him. Now, who could have ever blamed this man for giving up? For how long do you wait for God? This man had waited for God for a lifetime. 
And there really wasn't much evidence of God anywhere. Those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. Poverty and slavery was entrenched. Two out of every three people alive when Jesus was born were slaves. Religion was empty. Immorality was full. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Wasn't much evidence of God there. It wouldn't have, you wouldn't have blamed this man if he had given up, but he didn't give up. And the difference between the biblical man and the other man is that the biblical man never gives up. I repeat, you can find God anywhere if you want to find Him badly enough. Take, for example, Iriana Ratushinskaya, the Soviet poet and dissident. She grew up in atheism in Soviet Union, and she was told all her life there is no God. She didn't know any different. She had no missionary, no track, no Sunday school teacher to ever tell her different. But in the innocency of her child mind, she began to reason, there must be a God or they wouldn't always be telling us there wasn't. It wasn't until later, much later in her 20s, she got a Bible for the first time and there discovered that the God she had come to believe as a child was the God of the Scriptures. And she said... Then I believed in Jesus. Take Norma Todd, for example, living down in Australia. Violence and crime was all she knew in life, and hatred. And one day when a policeman came to her door to tell her about Jesus, she tried to beat him up. She was a prostitute and an alcoholic. But this God was inexorable. And she could not resist his knock upon her door. And so one day she yielded all of her life to him and was totally transformed. And take Jerry Levin, for example. An atheist, when the Muslims captured him in 1986, the extremist, maybe he really wasn't an atheist. Maybe he was an agnostic who said, I didn't really know if you could know for sure if there was a God or not. But he said week after week, month after month, chained to a radiator and blindfolded, I found my mind drifting to the one I had denied. And I thought to myself, I'll either pray to God or I'll lose my mind. But I thought within myself, if I have any doubt, just a finite amount of doubt in me, I'll just be talking to myself. And so he said, they're chained to a radiator and blindfolded with Muslim extremists all around. I believed in God. Listen to what he said. Ten days after my meditating began, I approached and then crossed a kind of spiritual Rubicon a diminishing point in time, a shrinking thousandth, then millionth of a second, on one side of which I did not believe, then on the other side I did. And he came to faith in God. And later in Jesus, and without a Bible and an evangelist or an invitation or a track, the Holy Spirit called him to the Godhead. I tell you, you can find God anywhere you want to find Him if you want to badly enough. Second proposition. 
Oh, by the way, I got a Christmas card uh, Friday from Gibb. And in this Christmas card, he, he said, I hear there are a lot of people being saved in Saudi. I'm looking forward to my visit. You can find God anywhere you want to badly enough. Second proposition. You can find God anywhere you want to, but you're most likely to find Him in the dark where men are hurting. Now, if you're looking for God in some cloistered ivory palace sitting on some throne dressed in robes of satin, barking out instructions to servants who run about serving Him in slavish fear, you're looking for God in the wrong place. For the message of Christmas is that God has come to our squalor and our poverty and our, and our suffering, to our pain and our slavery. I love these Christmas commercials. Target has out a new one. I love it. I give you something. Whatever he Target gives me, and I know it's cheaper, and I'm like, well, I better you know, get off into that storm. But my favorite commercial, I hate to admit it, is Budweiser <laughs> beer. Now, not that I like Budweiser, because <laughs> I, I, that's not it, but I love that commercial. You know the one with the one-horse open sleigh coming down into the little village, and it's covered in snow, just about dusk, and this heart's trotting along, and the sleigh bells are ringing, and, 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 and they pass these beautiful lighted houses, and, and by that beautiful church that has lights in it, up to this marvelous home, just right up to the front door. I love it. I guess the reason I like it is because I wish that was the way it was. I wish that for every man and woman and child this year. But the reality is that's not the way it is. Reality is that there are people homeless today and hungry. Reality is that there are people, more people on earth today who are hungry than there are who are full. And reality is that there are people who are caught in the bondage of, of despair and will never get out. Reality is not beautiful lights and homes and churches. I picked up a newspaper this past week and I saw this headline. It said, No Christmas in Bethlehem this year. And I read the article, and the article, of course, was a fact, about the fact that because of the problems on the, on the West Bank, there are no tourists in Bethlehem for the celebration, only vacant lots and taxis with nobody in them, it said. And then it went on to describe in this, in this article how poverty was rampant in the little town of Bethlehem, and if the tourists aren't able to get back there, the whole town may go under. No Christmas in Bethlehem. I tell you, you can't keep God out of Bethlehem. That's the very place He wants to be. 
where there are guns and men and war and hunger. For what could be more real than the birth of a baby in a barn without the benefit of OB or white table or anesthetic? What could be more real than blood and pain and helplessness and cattle? And he came not with a, with, a wrapped, with a halo wrapped around his head. He came with swaddling clothes wrapped around his body. And what could be more real than spit and curses and nails and the splinters and a cross? Martin Luther was correct when he said, we have too, much, too many lights in our windows and too many lights in our stores and in our homes. For God is most likely found where men are lost in the dark. And so God has come to tell us in flesh, I'm willing to come to this fouled up world and assume your temptation and your pain. If you're looking for God, you can find Him anywhere but you're most likely to find Him there. One last proposition. When you find God in a manger, in the arms of a child, just a child was this woman, that's a serendipity. Now you know the definition of a serendipity. A serendipity is the faculty of making happy and unexpected discoveries. So that a spiritual serendipity would be the faculty of making happy and unexpected discoveries of God. The most beautiful example is that of Mary Magdalene. And she came to the the garden wondering how the stone was going to be rolled away. When she got there, she found the stone already rolled away. And a man behind her, assuming he was the gardener, she said, without looking, Sir, if you have taken our Lord, tell me where you put him so that I can find him. And that voice, when he spoke, Both the birds hushed their singing, rang out through the garden, Mary. And she turned and whispered, Rabboni, teacher, expecting to find a gardener, she found God. What a miracle to come to a manger and discover a monarch. To come to a stable and find a sovereign. To come to the temple of God and encounter the God of the temple. And so Edwin Hova said, this is my picture of a serendipity. I watched as a caterpillar died, shriveled up and began to develop a cocoon around him. I watched as the caterpillar died and then I saw the butterfly live. 
What a serendipity. He thought he was dying and he was being born. What a serendipity. This man Simeon thought, it's time to die. And he discovered him who gives eternal life. In Shanghai, they came first for the professors and the businessmen, the Red Guard, some of them as young as 15 years of age. And they hauled these successful people out in the streets and had makeshift trials and they were compelled to confess to imaginary crimes against Mao Zedong. And then most of them were sent off to labor camps to be, quote, re-educated. Some of them were beaten and many of them were executed. And the great proletarian cultural revolution began with an orgy of destruction and murder. And Mao Zedong's goal was to erase 6,000 years of Chinese thought, law, culture, manners, history. He thought, if I can erase tradition, I can reshape a new man, the socialist man, so that every connection, anybody who had a connection with the pre-West were either executed or imprisoned. And these mobs of students and soldiers and, and party officials were out in the streets arresting people and killing them. And if you had Western dress or Western hairstyle, you were a prime target. And they looted the homes of the wealthy. And so there was a little woman who grew up in Shanghai. Her name was Nian Chang. She was wealthy. She was educated in London. She was conversant in art and music. She knew that the circle of, of accusation and charges was tightening around her. She worked for nine years as a consultant for Shell Oil Company. Her next door neighbor, a Swiss engineer, was arrested and called a running Swiss dog and was executed by the Red Guard, of which his two younger children were a part. And she began to plan for her arrest like a woman planning for a party. She packed all her precious heirlooms in a box. She took care of her servants and the times that her house was looted began to increase and these red guard would come in and they'd break her fine porcelain and destroy her priceless art. They wrecked her house in search of imaginary guns and gold for the counter-revolution. Finally, on September the 27th, 1966, Nian Chang was brought before a tribunal as an imperialist spy. Her accusers had a long list of false charges and they shouted, confess, and they spat on her and they called her a dirty spy and they told her, we'll kill you. I've never done anything against the people's government, she replied calmly. 
She was taken to prison. And she was thrown into a dirty cell. Dirt was caked on the walls and on the bed. And there was one little light bulb that burned 24 hours a day. Weeks passed. And she longed for freedom. And she read the works of Mao trying to find something that would release her. And she longed for some encouragement. And one day it came. Listen to it. As Nay and Chang gazed out her tiny window, a pea-sized spider crawled through the rusty bars and climbed toward the ceiling. Suddenly the spider swung out on a silken thread, attached the strand to the base of the bar, and swung another, then another. It worked with purpose and confidence, weaving a web of intricate beauty. I had just watched an architectural feat by an extremely skilled artist, Nian Chang, writes of her little tiny cellmate. My mind was full of questions. Who taught the spider to make that web? Could it have really acquired the skill through evolution? Or did God create the spider? and endow it with the ability to make a web so that it could catch food and perpetuate its species. I knew I had just witnessed something beautiful and uplifting. I knew I had just witnessed God. And she came to a cell and she found God. And that is a serendipity of unequaled magnitude. <coughs> oh, come, all ye faithful, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And you came, slipping and sliding, to church. And you discovered God. Let's pray. Our Father, everywhere we look, we see you today. In the faces of little children and the etched lines of the aged, looking up and looking out in the colors and the brightness of this day, in the suffering and in the sorrow that exists in a world that knows not God, we find you today in a baby born in a manger. And we hear you saying in his way, 
come and follow me to God. And I pray this morning that there will be in this place experiences of renewal and rebirth that will make us all aware that God is here and God remains. For I pray in His Son's name and for His sake. In a moment, look here, in a moment we'll have our invitation inviting you to come. Invite you to come this morning to Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. You can find Him here if your need is great enough and you're aware of it. Finding Him, you find life. You find God. Maybe you need to come today to place your life in fellowship with God's people or to rededicate yourself to the cause of Christ to which you have been called. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.